Hey, everybody. Welcome to another edition of the 7th Avenue Project. I'm your host, Robert Polly. And today, uh, my guest on the show is Janae Desmond-Harris. She's a staff writer for TheRoot.com, the online journal of African-American news, culture, politics, and opinion. And uh, I've been wanting to talk to Janae ever since I noticed that she had started a new column in The Root this past year called Race Manners. It's an advice column where Janae tackles questions sent in by readers who are struggling with tricky racial issues that come up in their own lives. Now, uh, we have examined race on this program uh, many times before, but not exactly from this perspective. That is, in terms of concrete, everyday situations and the way that race can complicate so many of our personal interactions. So I was really interested to get Janae's perspective, and she was kind enough to accept my invitation to be on the show. We had a very interesting conversation about racial identity, be it black or white or biracial or none of the above, about multiracial families and interracial dating, about racism and how to deal with it, racial humor, and much more. So stay tuned and listen in on today's interview with Janae Desmond-Harris. Janae, first of all, thanks for joining me on the show. Thanks for having me. How did you get into this? How did you become an advice columnist? Well, I've been somewhat preoccupied with race and identity and their complications for some time. Um, I myself am biracial. I went to Howard University, a historically black college, where I focused a lot on on race and race and politics um, and race in American history. And as a writer for The Root, I started off just sort of covering whatever the racial headlines were every day. And one thing I noticed was that normally when, um, when racism and offensiveness are discussed in the mainstream, the conversation is not very nuanced, right? It's when we see the talking heads on cable TV and one is saying, that's horribly racist, and the other is saying, no, it's not. He has black friends. And then one is saying, what if it was on the other foot? And we don't really learn anything, um, I think, because everyone's sort of in panic mode because this is such a sensitive topic. And what I thought would be really interesting would be to have a conversation around race and racism, what's offensive versus what's appropriate, that was sort of a bit toned down, um, that allowed for a little bit of compassion, a little bit of nuance, a little bit of critical thinking. And I thought um, people seeking out advice versus being attacked for having made mistakes would be the perfect place for that. Um, as you say, it's a sensitive topic. It's a topic that trips up people right and left. Uh, I mean, that both in the political sense and just in the general sense of everybody. Um, it seems like on the national scene, a, a week doesn't go by without somebody uh, trying to extricate themselves from some embarrassment uh, they've gotten into by talking about race mm -hmm. and maybe issuing a tearful apology or losing their job or you know, ending badly in some other way. We saw Melissa Harris-Perry this past mm -hmm. week um, all choked up, apologizing for a show in which, you know, her guests seemed to laugh at Mitt Romney's black grandchild. We can talk about that one later because I think that's a, a great case study in how these things get understood or misunderstood. Mm -hmm. But my question for you is, seeing this kind of long pile of uh, casualties you know, of people who tried to talk about race publicly. Were you at all scared, uh, worried about, you know, issuing advice? Um, I have to say I wasn't, only because I have the luxury of having a week to prepare for every piece that I write. 
So I get to speak to experts if I find the issue really hard or confusing. And I also put in a lot of caveats. I'm forever saying, you know, there are no firm rules, or here's another way of thinking about this, or I realize you have good intentions here. Here's some context to help you consider it differently. Um, so I'm really at an advantage compared to people who are sort of speaking off the cuff or people who haven't spent a lot of time um, thinking about and analyzing racial issues. And seeing as you're not a politician, you're not out there to make points for your side and use race for that purpose? Right, exactly. I'm, my only my only interest is sort of getting to the bottom of it. I mean, obviously I come from a progressive perspective. I come from the perspective of wanting people of color to be treated fairly. Um, but other than that, I don't have an agenda besides just sort of just sort of this frustration with the very shallow conversations that I often see around these issues. <laughs> You're a racist. No, I'm not a racist. You're the racist. <laughs> right, exactly. <laughs> like, how many times can we really do that? Apparently, we can do it every week. Um, I'm amazed. But it's always it's always a great headline. It's always a hot topic. Um, and I, I am glad that these things get attention. I do think the sort of the racial missteps and snafus and, you know, the offensive jokes that come to light um, and end up getting people fired, I think they help sort of tune our collective radar to the things that are painful and that are not okay. But we need more than that. We need to know why. And I think there are a lot of people, um, in particular white people, who want to do the right thing and have really good intentions, but sort of have these burning questions like, wait, so is this okay or is it not okay? And if not, why? And there aren't many really safe spaces to ask those for people who are afraid of being labeled racist. In fact, uh, you know, among the many catch-22s is, say, asking a black friend, is this racist or is this not racist, or how should I as a white person act, is to put that person in the uncomfortable or weird position of being a spokesperson. And that's that's another no-no. Right, that's another (laughs) thing that, that I would advise against. I've said in a couple of columns that, you know, black people are, are not monolithic. Um, neither are people who claim any other identity. And it's sort of an, a little bit of an act of, of privilege or entitlement to say to someone, look, I need you to kind of give this the, the black stamp and make it okay for me. Um, instead, maybe just like presenting a dilemma, asking a few questions, maybe even doing a little research on your own first is better than just turning it over completely to the person of color to, um, to deem it okay or not okay. Or maybe just writing uh, an email to um, racemannersattheroot.com, right? Right. <laughs> How many do you get per week? Some weeks I just get one. Um, some weeks I get up to five or ten. Um, and I, I, what I do is I sort through them and I look for the questions. Um, one, that are, that are timely. If I think it's an issue that a lot of people might be interested in the answer to, I'll definitely lean towards answering those questions. Um, also, I look for questions that present what I see as a sincere dilemma versus someone asking me to deem something racist. You know, I get a lot of questions like, my friend, my friend does this. Explain to me how to explain to them that it's racist. Like, we could, we could do that sort of name-calling and labeling thing all day, but I'm more interested in helping people sort through things that are legitimately hard for them. Although, I, I suppose there is room for another column just called, You're Racist. Right, exactly. <laughs> We could do like a whole website for that, and I think people have. You're reminding me of, of one of the uh, letters that did get a response from you in The Root. Um, this one's called, Help, I'm a Racist and Don't Want to Be. You know, this was one of my favorite letters, because isn't this the question that we wish so many more people would ask? I mean, how many things could have been avoided if people had sort of taken the time to ask this question? I ended up starting my response with this whole caveat about why I took it. 
because when I sort of teased um, my Twitter followers with it, a lot of people were like, well, the person's a jerk. Well, why would you even say anything to them? You know, don't deal with racists. And I said, well, I think the issue is that this person is being more honest than most people about how um, his environment has affected him. And the experts I talked to reflected that belief. They told me what I tell the people in many columns, which is, first, calm down. Like, take away the sense of panic that surrounds discussing race. Um, De-escalate the situation for yourself. And, you know, don't totally blame yourself. Our country has a long history of racism, and it comes at you from a lot of different angles, and it's not entirely shocking that it would have sort of gotten into your consciousness in some way. Um, I encourage the person to educate himself. There are actually tons of resources for white people who are committed to anti-racism. Thank God for the Internet. There's so much you can read. There's so much you can expose yourself to. And then I told him after that to get together with other people, including people of color, to sort of ask for support in moving forward on this issue. And by the way, I I could read a little bit of this guy's uh, question for you. Uh, he says, I'm a racist and I don't want to be. I'm a white man in my early 40s. And for years, I've been extremely awkward and anxious around African-Americans, especially men. At some point in my early teens, I became very self-conscious about the racial divide. And about that time, I moved to a much more homogeneously white area. And I guess gradually black people became abstractions to me or something. When I moved back to a more mixed neighborhood in college, I found I was afraid of them. Horrible thoughts and associations of crime, violence, whatever would spring to mind. Um, so he's afraid and he is um, at the same time disturbed by his fear. I mean, is this guy a racist or is he just um, a highly sensitive individual who's reflecting a lot of, you know, cultural ideas in an uncomfortable way? Right. I think, I think the label is hard here because we know that racism can sort of inform the thoughts and perspectives of all of us to different extents, including people of color. So I was less, wor less worried about sort of, are you a racist, are you not a racist? I try to stay, around, stay away from that um, because I don't think it's the most productive way to deal with these questions. But, you know, the guy called himself a racist, so I'm going to go with that. What <laughs> um, the expert I spoke to, who was a psychologist who focused on issues of race and diversity, told me, was that this moment that the reader was expressing was actually a really crucial stage in what many people call the stages of racial identity development. That moment when you, when you realize there's inequality, I'm part of it, it's not okay, it makes me uncomfortable, you can go two directions there. You can rationalize that and say, well, it's because black people really are horrible, or well, it's really reverse racism, or you can really confront it. So it's actually a really powerful moment um, and even more powerful when you've come to this realization yourself versus having someone sort of announce that you're racist and attack you. By the way, this guy doesn't express any feelings of animosity, superiority, or any of the stuff we associate with hardcore bigotry. It's fear. It's all about fear. And uh, I imagine that's another reason why you wanted to address this one, because fear is at the root of so much of this stuff. Right, exactly. I believe I said in the piece, you know, I wish that um, George Zimmerman would have asked himself, why is it that black men are so scary to me? Is this normal? Do I want to shake this feeling? Before he decided that Trayvon Martin was really intimidating, likely in part because he was black, and took extreme measures. So I think it, it was a really powerful and really honest question. Um, let's talk a little more about your background. You said um, you're biracial. Um, I know from reading your column you, ha you have a white mom, is that right? Mm-hmm. Uh, black dad? Yes. And so at what point did you become, I imagine, super aware of racial 
dynamics and racial tension in this country? You know, it was probably around the time I was in high school. Um, just going to a high school that was slightly more diverse than the really predominantly white um, elementary school and middle school that I'd been to. I'd actually been raised in the way I think a lot of biracial kids and kids of color who are adopted by white families are, which was that um, colorblindness was sort of the name of the game. And with all the best intentions, talking about race was sort of seen as taboo. You didn't want to talk about race in the same way you didn't want to talk about, you know, obesity or someone having cancer or is this something that, or, you know, a, mm. a mental illness. It was something that was not seen as unsavory to focus on. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I grew up sort of resisting any explicit discussion of race. I even remember as a younger child, I knew that my father was black, but I didn't quite connect that to me being black. I just chose not to really think about it very hard. Um, obviously, as you get older <clears throat> and you're more exposed to things in the world and you're reading more, it becomes a bit unavoidable. Um, it was probably when I was a sophomore that I just sort of had, I just sort of had a moment when I realized that I was black and that race matters. Um, it's around that time that I decided to go to a historically black college when I finished high school. So it was at that age that you, I mean, deciding is probably the wrong word. I, I was about to say decided to identify as black, but for one reason or another, this was the point at which you began you know, completely identifying as black rather than just, say, biracial? Um, well, to go back a little, I, I actually think decided is okay. Um, I believe people can pretty much decide how they want to identify. Personally, I'm, I know I have a white parent and a black parent. Um, I identify as biracial and black. It's sort of like I've written before that it's like I'm from California, but I'm also from the San Francisco Bay Area. They're both true, and one is more specific than the other. Mm -hmm. Um, What feels true to me and what's been my experience is that being biracial is one of many ways of being black, according to how race has been constructed in our society. Uh, Because the the idea of black, which is extremely complicated, I think, um, traditionally meant simply having, you know, some fraction of black ancestry. Mm -hmm. Uh, That was enough to, for instance make you eligible for slavery (laughs) for being a slave or for other kinds of, you know, terrible treatment or discrimination. So it's even less of sort of an intellectual exercise than just an experiential and even emotional decision. Um, Mm -hmm. What I tell people, and again, I say, I encourage you to identify in whatever way feels right and feels like the truth for you. But, um, but it, it feels authentic and it feels like it makes sense for me to say I'm a black person the way in which I'm black is that I'm biracial. I could, you know, I could spend the entire show uh, talking to you about that. It's so interesting uh, about a turning point in your life, um, about how to identify and what it means to identify. Mm-hmm. Um, and we have much more to talk about, so I won't do that, but uh, I want to linger over it for a moment longer. Mm-hmm. Um, was part of it that though um, black identity in America is very complicated it's still somehow a, a lot clearer than what white identity is. White is this diffuse, cloudy, vaporous thing, you know, for mm-hmm. for reasons, again, we could talk about for hours. But uh, was there something just more attractive, too, about that identity? Hmm, that's a really good question. Um, I will say that it's been my experience that on a practical level, the black community is just more welcoming of people who have um, more complicated backgrounds. 
I would have a hard time sort of going on the street and saying I'm white um, than saying I'm black. I think it, it reflects more people's reality for me to identify as black, but um, more attractive. I'm not sure. Um, that's that's a really hard question. I'm actually not sure, not sure about the answer to it. Yeah, yeah. Um, when you made that decision, when you went to Howard, et cetera, did your relationship to white people change? I would say actually my relationship to to black people changed more. When I went to Howard, I identified only as biracial um, or mixed because I actually had ideas about what it meant to be fully black that were informed by my sort of mostly white upbringing. I thought you had to speak a certain way, listen to certain music, go to a certain church, and eat certain food. Um, and pretty much from the moment I stepped onto the campus of Howard University where I had girls in my dorm um, from all parts of the country, from all parts of the world, um, with different religions, with different interests, with different, um, with different tastes as far as music, with different ways of speaking. It really hit home for me that there are multiple ways to be black, and there, there's no one set of boxes you have to check. And that's when I realized, oh, my, my black experience is just as legitimate as, as anyone else's. So I can't say that it really changed my relationship um, with white people. I still have a lot of the same friends from high school. Um, I'm very, very close with my mother, who's white. And if anything, I've noticed that the white people who I knew before I became, um, I guess, more entrenched in thinking and talking about race are really fascinated by what I'm doing and really supportive of it. Mm. You know, um, as you say, there's a, there, there are as many ways of being black as there are black people. And yet the, there is, you know, some traditional anxiety around, you know, being black enough or being too black. And I'm reminded of yet another um, of the uh, the questions that have been sent to you and that you responded to in, in your column mm -hmm. in The Root. Will an HBCU, that is a historically black college or university, make my kid too <laughs> black? <laughs> right. This was from a, a very um, earnest and well-intended um, African-American mother whose daughter was at what she said was a top historically black college, but she was asking me, you know, all her friends and classmates are now black. What's going to happen when she goes out into the world? Is she only going to be able to relate to black people? And, by the way, is her education going to be inferior? Is she going to be too black for the real world? Um, so, obviously, I'm biased here. You heard me raving about my experience at Howard. Yeah. Um, what I first did was sort of just give her some of the data. Obviously, there's all different kinds of historically black colleges with different strengths, different missions, and different rankings. She said her daughter was at a top one, so I was able to easily say the quality of education she's receiving is great. Um, the expert I spoke to assured me that many graduates of top HBCUs go on to Ivy League graduate schools, achieve wonderful things, and do just fine. I also pointed out something that I think is talked about less, which is what I mentioned before. Black colleges are actually pretty diverse. There are a lot of different people with a lot of different backgrounds there. Um, a lot of students also travel abroad. So it's not as if by going to an HBCU just around people who are exactly like you. I don't think that's the case at all. You have all these same opportunities to grow and to spread your wings and to interact with a variety of different folks. Um, what I ended up telling her was really that I thought this attitude about blackness being inferior or problematic or black people being sort of second tier was really much more dangerous to her daughter than any, you know, potential deficiencies in an educational experience. I don't think you mentioned in that column that you had gone to Howard, 
but I noticed your response was was very strong. Mm-hmm. And uh, I'm just going to read a little portion near the end. Um, your daughter could probably do just fine at any school, but at this point, she's already at an HBCU, and there's definitely no evidence that it's going to harm her. She should stay. As a bonus, she might get an education about how her racial identity and community are more than just burdens that threaten to hold her back if she doesn't manage them properly. If so, I hope she passes that lesson on to the rest of the family. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I wasn't trying to be mean, but there are times when, you know, people of color, black people and other people absorb some really problematic attitudes about this stuff, this stuff. And I'm always trying to, when I can, tap into what younger generations can teach older generations. Um, I think this is a case when the daughter might sort of be a few steps ahead of the mother when it comes to what it means to be black and what it means to be around black people. And you aren't uh, averse to wagging your finger every now and then? No, not at all. I mean, I do try to be compassionate. Um, I find myself always saying to people, calm down, don't freak out. I know that you have good intentions here. But I also like to give people a reality check once in a while if I think their thinking is just kind of skewed altogether. Um, We were talking about multiracial families. Here is an inquiry from someone who is described as a white dad wondering how to raise his biracial kids. Um, specifically, this father of biracial kids is wondering how much he should, and, and Janae, just you know, add you know, any details that I leave out here that are important, but he's wondering how much he should introduce his biracial kids to African-American culture, how much he should sort of actively try to connect them with African-American culture. Is that right. a good characterization? Uh, yeah, there was another sort of interesting twist to this question, if I remember correctly, which was that um, so this man's wife was African-American, and she wasn't as worried about this at all. Right, right. And in fact, they, as a couple, were really interested in things related to his, I believe it was like his Scandinavian upbringing and traditions around that. And yeah, like, German. Vid- and like video games and science fiction and these type of things. Right. Um, basically, I told him that I think it would be artificial to sort of do like, a Black History Month tour with your kids that your (laughs) wife wasn't even really supporting, and that maybe more importantly, he should stop thinking about a lot of the things that they enjoy together, science fiction, video games, um, sci-fi, as white things. Um, I suggested some resources to him of black people who are heavily involved in those areas, and that maybe he could make his kids, at whatever point, I don't believe they were born yet, aware of groups like that so they wouldn't feel sort of isolated or alone. You make the point... In this column, or maybe in another column, though, that in a total vacuum, uh, in terms of knowing about African-American history, about African-American culture, about having good connections to the African-American community or communities, that negative stuff can creep in, because society's full of it, negative images of black people. Um, Absolutely. I think you you don't want to ignore it altogether, because... Um, the media will have your kids thinking that, like I said, the only way to be black is to be a rapper or an athlete. Not there's anything wrong with being those things, but um, or I mean the stereotypes, especially of African American women, that are promoted so heavily. You can't sort of let those things lead the day. Um, your children need to be exposed to real people, and also I focus a lot on media literacy. Like, if you don't have all the answers, at least give them some of the tools to question what they absorb every day and to ask themselves whether it's really true. You said uh, about your own background that race wasn't really something you thought about a lot until Mm -hmm. your high school years. Mm -hmm. I think that's right. But was there a time or were there times when one of your parents or both your parents or another adult sort of had the talk with you, you know, 
Janae, I want to make sure that you know what's going on out there in America about race, or did that never happen? You know, not really, and I think that's why when it did come up, it felt a bit awkward. So, for example, I know that um, aunts and uncles on my dad's side of the family would give me, like, black Barbies and black dolls. Uh And I was sort of like, hmm, this is weird. No one else has black dolls. This is strange, but okay. Um, My dad would take me to um, Black History Month celebrations and, like, Martin Luther King Day parades. But there was never really an, an accompanying message. And so I always, because, because race is a taboo topic, I felt a bit uncomfortable in those situations. I have a lot of friends who are biracial, who have biracial kids. I have biracial kids in my family. And I think everybody in that situation does think about what should we do actively as opposed to letting kids learn the ropes on their own. It's a tough one. Yeah, it's a really tough one. Um, And I hope this doesn't sound like a punt or avoiding the question, but one thing I've told a couple of parents who've written in is not to worry so much about having, like, a precise and specific party line or answer for your children, but rather to encourage them to think critically and ask a lot of questions. So, for example, in one column, there is a woman who is um, from the Dominican Republic, and she identified as both black and, and Latina. And her daughter, who was um, darker, her father was African-American, was like, Mom, you're white. No, you're not black, Mom. You're white. I know you're white. Look at you. And she's like, what do I tell my kid? I mean, she's looking at me. She's saying I'm white. She won't listen to me. And the expert I spoke to for this piece told me this is really, um, your child isn't, isn't wrong. What she's doing is sort of revealing and bringing to the surface how complicated and messy race and identity are. Um, sometimes kids can see things in, way, in ways that we can't. So I advise the mother not to say, you know, yes, you're right, I have white skin, or no, you're wrong, I'm black and Latina, but ask questions like, oh, why do you say that? And why do you think it matters? And what do you think, what do you think it means when somebody is black or white? What does it mean for their life? What should it mean? So a lot of times these things can be opportunities for discussions that can teach kids to sort of, think about these things in a way that's more sophisticated than we even have. By the way, the, the daughter in this case is five years old. So right. <laughs> she's a little young to, to get her head around, unless she's incredibly precocious, uh, the complexity of race. Mm-hmm. It's hard for most Americans to get their heads around it, I think. Right, exactly. <laughs> but uh, you, you ended after talking to that um, expert by saying, uh, and we all know that in a country that's becoming increasingly multiracial and where it's ever riskier to assign individuals an identity they haven't already claimed for themselves, labels make less and less sense all the time. I definitely believe that. Um, I think we're getting to this point in the country when, you know, more and more people are multiracial all the time. There are more people in interracial relationships. Um, Even the census may change as far as how it designates people. The way someone appears is really only the first hint of what their identity is. I don't even think it's safe anymore to look at someone and say, well, you're definitely black, you're definitely white. Um, there was a fascinating piece in National Geographic about sort of all the different ways people can look these days and the many different identities that they choose for themselves. Um, so I think it can teach us a lot to sort of wait a beat and, and ask someone, you know, what's important to them as far as their identity versus working really, really hard to fit people into these old and artificial boxes. Have you ever tried or or had to explain American racial politics and American uh, racial dynamics to someone from outside the country? 
I haven't had any letters from outside the country. I did, um, I did study abroad in South Africa when I was in law school. What I found interesting was that there I was considered colored, which is like the in-between black and white category. And that is a very distinct category. Right, and everyone was 100% sure that's what I was. There was no question. Um, and it was such a different experience for me versus growing up here and having a lot of people um, really just project their own experiences and realities onto what I am. I've said in some pieces before that I've gotten everything from oh, you're obviously black, to, no, you're definitely completely white, to, oh, you must be <laughs> aboriginal or creole or Dominican or Jewish, um, or just, what are you? I can't figure it out. There, it was completely clear to them. So explaining how in the United States it was up in the air was sort of an interesting exercise. Um, I had a friend from Guatemala who was largely of, uh, I think, indigenous descent, um, dark-complected, uh, he came here, and we were talking about race in America, and I used the terms black and white. And he said, in all earnestness, what do you mean? Really? And it was harder than hell to tell him what I meant. Because, of course, it's not about skin complexion. Right. Uh, it's not necessarily about purely about African ancestry versus European ancestry. It is a really hard question to answer if you really break it down. Right. And I, that's why I'm like a, I'm like a broken record in three <laughs> out of four um, in three out of four responses in race manners. I'm saying, you know, for the record, race is a social and political instruction, construction. It's not it doesn't make sense. It's not really based in biological reality. There's no like blood test you can get that says whether you're black or white. Um, it changes with time, place and perspective. So it's interesting to sort of have to hold all those truth about how little sense race makes and at the same time realize that it still does have a huge impact on people's everyday lives. And so in that sense, it's very real. Um, do you know uh, Chris Abani? Uh, no. Uh, he's a Nigerian-born uh, writer, novelist. His mother was white and English. His dad was black and Nigerian. He grew up in Nigeria. And to Americans, he just looks like a black person to most Americans. In Nigeria, though, they could detect he was not purely Nigerian, and, and he actually had, it was an affectionate nickname when he was a musician, and it was Whitey. <laughs> and, and he was in like a reggae band, and they called him Whitey. And he came to the U.S., and he was immediately treated and assumed to be black. So, you know, just by crossing the ocean, his whole identity changed because of the, the differing histories of those two countries. Um. You said in South Africa they had a clear label for you, colored, mm -hmm. because they'd even that was the third category legally in in South Africa. Right. You know, blacks had few to no rights, whites had most of the power, and coloreds were sort of in between legally, right? Mm -hmm. But here in the U.S., I mean, we don't biracial is something people can't seem to fathom. I mean, President Obama is biracial, and yet he is to most Americans black. Uh, you know, end of story, right? Right. I think um, most Americans probably would not be on board with my conception as, you know, biracial. You can be biracial and black. Um, that's what makes sense to me. But anytime you talk about President Obama's race, you're going to have people saying, he's absolutely black because he wouldn't be able to catch a cab in New York City. <laughs> or that doesn't make mathematical sense. He's just as much white as he is black. Um, and, you know, both of those are true to the to the people expressing those views, but I think I'd encourage people to let go of sort of a, a scientific or a mathematical analysis of race, because, like I said before, um, it's it's not it's not really a scientific thing, and it doesn't actually make that much sense. So to try to 
create these firm rules for who should identify as what will absolutely drive you crazy. And no one's going to agree, ever. So some people then take all that and say, well, gee, let's just start operating as though we were colorblind. You know, these categories make no sense. You can't really discern a person's ancestry, even if it were as simple as figuring out their pedigree. Uh, you know, you can't even tell from looking at them. Uh, there are people who look white who have African-American or other um, so, so-called non-white, you know, ancestry. Mm-hmm. And there are people who are considered black who have lots of European ancestry or mm-hmm. other ancestry, Native American ancestry. So you can't really tell. Um, even if you could, you know, what would you do with that information? So why not just, you know, trash the whole thing? And yet to do so is to be ahistorical. It's not mm-hmm. to realize all the social forces that have reinforced identity in America so painfully. You know, so, so what's a person to do? Well, I think for an individual person who's wondering about another individual person's racial identity, really the best bet is to just ask them. <laughs> there's really, there's, there's very little else that we can do. But that, um, that could be pretty insulting, too, you know. Right, exactly. Those are touchy subjects. You'll always hear people complain, especially people who are multiracial, about being asked, what are you? And yeah, exactly. Sort of like, or where are you from? Or something. Right, no, where are you really from? Right, that can be touchy. But when it comes to sort of, um, say, even like you mentioned, how we talk about President Obama, if the man says he's black, he's black. And we're all going to really be wasting our time if we, if we continue to analyze it too much more. That's not to say that it's not messy. That's not to say that categorizing people based on the the labels that are currently available to us is ever going to be really precise or perfect. But like you said, there are some social realities that are attached to these things and some everyday experiences that are attached to how people identify and how their ancestors have identified. Um, so I absolutely understand the inclination to say, well, race was created because of racism, so let's forget about it. Unfortunately, we're still we're still left with the aftermath of that, and we can't just sort of turn a blind eye to it, as nice as some people feel that might be. I can't remember who it was that said some version of this. It might have been Anthony Appia, the philosopher, mm-hmm. uh, who himself is biracial uh, and has written a lot about racial identity uh, and the fact that scientifically it's not real. Mm-hmm. But he said, race is an illusion with real consequences. That's, he just put it much more articulately than I did. That's absolutely it. And uh, excuse me, Anthony, if I misquoted you. But yeah, I think that gets right to the point. Um, I've talked in a couple of my columns to Dr. Dorothy Roberts, who's um, the author of a book called Fatal Invention, which talks about how race is, is sort of made up and how it's actually really dangerous, especially when it comes to people in the medical field, to use race as if it has like real physical and bio- biological consequences for people. Um, so I think it's important like, that we keep getting the word out that you know, it's an invention, but it has real consequences. You know, that's another subject uh, we not only could spend a whole show on, but I have, which is um, racial classification as a kind of proxy for real medical and health issues. There's a sociologist, Troy Duster. Do you, do you know him or do you know his work? No. He's spent a lot of time trying to debunk that, although there are still people in the medical profession who say, you know, if it's the only thing to go on and you're going to make a choice as to whether to test someone for sickle cell anemia, mm-hmm. uh, you know, skin color is a good first indicator. On the other hand, Troy points out that, you know, sickle cell anemia doesn't just exist in black people. It exists mm-hmm. in malaria belts around the world, which can include Asia and even has even included southern Europe. 
So using race, you know, as that first uh, index as to whether to test someone can, can throw you off badly. Right, and you realize how little sense it makes when you realize that we have choices about how we identify and what box we check on that initial intake form at the doctor's office. So the idea that someone, yeah. who, because of where they grew up or their experience or their politics, decides to check multiracial or other instead of black wouldn't get tested doesn't even make any sense. There has to be a better way, right? Mm. Yeah, I think, you know, hopefully, um, and I hear this is the case, we're headed toward a type of medicine that's called individual medicine, where they understand individuals much more and are less reliant on broad categories mm-hmm. uh, because we do very so much. Here's another um, column you had to write, or you wrote, you chose to write, excuse me. Um, and this is a, a particularly tricky one. You titled this one, Mixed Kids Are the Cutest Isn't Cute. Right, so this was actually my first column, the, the first issue of Race Manners. Um, a white mother of a biracial child wrote in and said, well, I'll just read her words. She said, I live in a predominantly white community. Why is it that whenever people discover that I have a mixed child, they all always say things like, oh, he must be so cute, gorgeous, and adorable. Those kids are always the best looking. You're so lucky. <laughs> she says, I know they mean well, but it seems off to me and maybe racist. Um, I said I think her instincts were right, that there is something, quote, unquote, off about that sentiment. And this is one of those things that's obviously very well-intended, right? People mean the best. And they probably actually mean to be, like, very progressive and forward-thinking by saying, oh, mixed kids are cuter than everyone else. The wave of the future, soon we'll all be brown and Mm -hmm. they're better, Mm -hmm. Um, even better than white kids. Mm -hmm. But I think when you put um, praising the beauty of children who are half black and half white in historical context, it sort of doesn't pass the sniff test when you consider how a premium has been placed on whiteness, especially when it comes to beauty throughout history, um, and especially when you think about what happens to kids who are identify as all the way black when we prize sort of like lighter and brighter over the way they look. Um, so the expert I t- talked to, Marsha Dawkins, who's the author of Clearly Invisible, which is all about racial passing and cultural identity, she sort of um, enlightened me on this by explaining that the myth that mixed-race offspring are somehow better than non-mixed offspring is, is an example of what's called hybrid vigor. Um, that's an evolutionary theory which states that the progeny of diverse varieties within a species tend to exhibit better physical and psychological characteristics than either or both of those parents. And, you know, guess how that's worked out for black people throughout mm. history? Not particularly well. Mm. So this is something that is well-intended in the moment, and it's said very lightly, but it just sort of touches on a lot of problematic themes throughout our history. And I advise the mother that she should say something like, I gave her a couple of options for a response. One is, well, you know, actually all of us, most of us are mixed. So it's, it's sort of odd to say that just my children, just children who have one white identified and one black identified parents would be the best looking And the second one would just be like, you know, we think she's great and we think she's really beautiful, but I'm a little uncomfortable with the idea that that has to do with her ethnic background. I'd rather just say that, you know, she's a beautiful person and a good kid. I've heard people say something similar to that, um, and they were saying it, you know, in many cases, seemingly as an aesthetic judgment that they really preferred an in-between color, that white people are too pale, and though they wouldn't say it, the implication is that black people are too black mm-hmm. and that some perfect medium is better. It made me wonder, though, is it really people in some unconscious way talking about um, 
biracial people as a kind of bridge, you know, that's sort of healing this awful divide? Yeah, I think I think that's one of the positive things that's behind the inclination to say this. I and it it comes in my view from the same place as wanting to say, Oh, wouldn't shouldn't we just be colorblind, you know? Yeah. We don't see color, soon everyone will be tan, it'll be all better. Um, but to me that's it's very pleasant, but it's it's a bit of a shortcut around real issues. Um, and it just makes me a little uncomfortable, especially because what does that mean? Like I said, what does that mean for black people and for that matter, for white people? Like you're just not going to be good enough unless you're mixed. That just is unsettling to me. It made me uncomfortable too when I heard it. And I I was wondering why did that bother me so much? And again, it's also part of like, you don't know this person. You're categorizing them already based on some idea of you know, admixture, you know? Right, exactly. It's just kind of weird. Yeah, it's just a little creepy. Yeah, yeah, even though well-meant. And also not true all the time. Like, we all know, <laughs> it's like, that's just sort of the same thing as saying, like, oh, like, all, like, blonde and blue-eyed people are great-looking. Well, maybe to some people, but also probably not a lot of the time, you know? <laughs> well, that raises another issue, which is uh, one that you may have already addressed in your column, which is, you know, the way people sort of bring to their their ideas of race, their feelings about other races, they do aestheticize certain characteristics. And if you look at like, oh, if you were to look at a 100 online dating self-portraits and all the specifications, you'll see a lot of preferences. Asian women or, right. you know, white men or black females, you know, people specifying. Mm-hmm. Now, some of that has to do with cultural maybe some level of cultural comfort, but there's also this idea that certain racial characteristics are hotter than others. Right. They become sexualized. This is one of the hardest topics for me to write about because on the one hand, I think it's sort of the most revealing about our, about the views we've absorbed about um, what has value and what doesn't when it comes to race. On the other hand, I think romantic choices are the most difficult area to sort of police in any way when it comes to race and identity and almost not worth our energy. Um, There's one piece, there's one column I wrote from um, a woman who's black and wondered whether her white boyfriend was fetishizing her because her friends had suggested this might be the case. Um, And ultimately I said, you know, if you're not worried about it and if you feel valued as a human being, then fine. This is probably your friends projecting their issues onto you. But even if he did say, like, what I like about you involves the things that make you black, I don't know if we could even be too upset about that. Like, when it comes to love and attraction, um, I think it's really largely um, subconscious and out of our hands. And it's just sort of, I'd much rather focus on on policy, um, on larger public understanding of social issues than on who individuals choose. You know, I th- th- you just reminded me. I did read that column too, and uh, it was it was a really interesting one. Uh, your response was quite interesting about the fact that romantic attraction is full of all kinds of unexamined. Uh, what's the word I want? Fetish is a terrible word. I don't want to use the word fetish, but you know, people are attracted for all kinds of unconscious reasons, right. and if it includes characteristics that we call racial. You know, is that any different from all the other things that, for some right. pe- reason, turn people on? Um, also, <laughs> that that color reminds me of the fact that most of your columns have a stock photo. Right, they do. <laughs> this one has. This one has. I don't know where you guys get these. Uh, <laughs> we, got, 
we get them from um, think stock images. We have a lot of fun finding them, actually. I, I could tell there's a sense of humor in the choice here. Yeah. Um, this one has a sort of blonde, cool-looking, you know, white guy and a beautiful black woman with her arms around him. Mm-hmm. Uh, she's swooning. They're both dressed in white. It's some mm-hmm. kind of like... Uh, you know, kind of corny romantic image. You know, they both look like they're definitely out of some kind of commercial, you know, for something. Uh, like for Sandals Resort. Sandals, there you go, exactly. <laughs> some place that encourages uh, interracial romance, though. Right, and she looks just delighted. Yeah, exactly. I try to overall put, like, some humor or some snark or something to sort of lighten the mood a little because this stuff can be so heavy. Um, and I think... The heaviness can make it hard to absorb sometimes. So when it's possible, yeah, we try to infuse, you know, a little light into the pieces. But uh, you know that that question, the way that the the woman who wrote the uh, the question was was sort of troubled. She was happy with the relationship. The guy loves her seemingly. He finds her beautiful and praises her in ways that you know feel really good to her. And yet her her friends are very suspicious. You know, is this jungle fever? You know, or something mm-hmm. like that, right? And it just reminds me of the way in which, uh, you know, racial history and racial weariness sort of burdens even our most intimate relationships sometimes. Absolutely. Yeah, I said in the response, you know, they didn't make this up out of nowhere. And it's not something that's part of ancient history when it comes to black women being objectified or sexualized by by white men. Like, these are concerns people still bring up in pop culture, in music videos, in popular TV series. Um and it can be true that these concerns are historically grounded, and it can also be true that she's not worried about them in her own relationship because they don't sort of echo her own experience. So I think that's where these things get complicated. We've been talking about um, race mostly in terms of black, mm-hmm. white, and biracial. Mm-hmm. Of course, there are a lot of people in the U.S. who don't fall into any of those categories. Yeah. Uh, people of color. <laughs> whether they're Latinos or people from South Asia or East Asia or North Africa or the Middle East mm-hmm. or many other places that, uh, you know, again, don't fall into our binary categories. Um, America is so fixated on its black-white history for obvious reasons that a lot of times it tries to shove other people into that scheme. Mm-hmm. Um, but you, you must get questions um, from people who aren't, part of that and are trying to figure out their place in it? Um, You know, I don't get as many, and one of my resolutions for the column for the new year is to seek out more of those, because I agree with you that I think America's racial history and racial current status is much more complicated than just black and white. Um, I think I'm often guilty of sort of like, of sort of being drawn to that because it, it reflects my experience and it's easiest for me, but there's so much more out there when it comes to people with, um, more diverse backgrounds. And uh, I've talked to quite a number of people who are like, you know, well, I'm not black, I'm not white, and uh, people expect me to be one or the other in this country, you know? Uh, (laughs) People from India, for instance, or Arabs, you know, or Latinos. It's amazing. Uh, Right, there's so many layers of complication. It's It's like you mentioned before, what's true here just might not line up at all with somebody else's experience. It might be totally counterintuitive to them to put them put themselves in one of these categories that we use. Are there any questions you've gotten that you haven't answered in your column because they just flummoxed you so completely that you just couldn't come up with a good answer? Um, let me think. Hold on. I'm actually going to think. 
I don't know if I want to talk about it or not. <laughs> you thought of one, but you're not sure? Yeah. Oh, darn it. Come on, come on, come on. Okay. Um, I had someone write in and ask, um, why do black men always have long fingernails? Whoa. And I was like, first of all, I didn't even, I had no idea that was a thing. But I thought, okay, let me look into it for this person. And so I looked into it, and you know how if you Google a question, you'll get to see, like, everywhere it's been asked on the Internet, and all these chat rooms and, like, weird message boards, people were talking about this issue. Um, apparently it is a stereotype, and apparently it's related to, like, drug use and stuff, but it was just so sort of detached from my reality, and I didn't have the sense that I was going to be able to sort of put the stereotype in proper context or explain it. It was just sort of... I felt like it was too much for me to take on in a responsible way because I knew there had to be, like, some, some truth about it that would move the conversation forward or some numbers or some really good expert perspective. But I really was just sort of spinning my wheels trying to figure out if I could say anything that was going to be at all helpful in response to this question. Yeah, and actually, not only is that, uh, does that one seem to be coming out of left field, but it's really not a question about manners or right, exactly. race relations. Which um, is another thing I wanted to ask you about. It's interesting to put race, you know, which is has been an issue of social justice, human rights, of crimes against humanity, um, into a category as benign sounding as, as manners and etiquette. Mm. Yeah, it really is because there's more to it, right, than just what's the appropriate thing to say. Right, right. You know, manners have more to do with making people feel comfortable. And exactly, sort of, yeah. And sort of going through the motions. Yeah. Um. But I hope what I do in the, in the column is most of the time, actually, instead of, like, prescribing a particular course of action, like you might find in an etiquette column, you know, make sure you send a thank you note or, no, don't invite this person to your wedding. Um, I hope that I give people a different way of thinking about the question they're asking so that they can sort of... Um, so they can sort of choose their conduct in a more organic way versus a way that's, like, grounded in anxiety about making a mistake. That's not to say I haven't had questions about who to invite to a wedding. One woman asked me, um, well, her main question was she was getting married, had a predominantly white group of friends, um, and wanted to hire a catering company that served Jamaican food, and all the caterers were Jamaican. And she was, I love how well-intended and, like, earnest some of these questions are. She was really worried that her guests of color, her black and other guests, were going to feel uncomfortable if the only other people of color at the wedding were, like, the helps, basically. Mm-hmm. Um, she mentioned as an aside that she had, like, an anti-Semitic racist uncle who was also going to be there, and she wasn't sure about him. I told it was funny because the, the core of her question was around these caterers, and I was basically like, don't worry about it. First of all, that's their job. It's not something they hate doing. It's not something demeaning. They run a catering company. Like, they want to be catering. Your guests know that. Second of all, please rest assured that any guest who's coming to your wedding has probably been the only person of color in about 700 <laughs> right, before. Right. Like, this is not new to them. Give them a little credit. Right. I was like, your real concern is probably this racist uncle. And I'm very quick to be like, cut people off if they have atrocious views and they offend people. Don't invite them. Short of that, like, have a handler who watches him and makes sure he doesn't offend anybody. Well, you know, that that's a good one, um, actually, uh, the racist uncle question. It probably happened, you know, countless times that people uh, are in a conversation or in their situation, maybe a family situation, maybe a social situation, where somebody says something that 
you know, makes your skin crawl about race. And, I mean, I guess I could speak for myself. I've tried the lecturing, like, mm -hmm. you know, try, trying to instruct the person. I know that sounds condescending as hell, and it was taken as such, and it right. wasn't very effective, you know? Um, sometimes you think, well, I'll just put some huge distance between myself and that person. I don't mm -hmm. want anything more to do with them. But then you haven't really advanced anything. I find myself feeling guilty if I don't confront the person because mm. like it's my social responsibility. And I sometimes feel um, f uh, you know, rather flustered if I do confront them because I feel like in some cases I haven't really persuaded them of anything. Uh, maybe I've made them more entrenched you know, because they just become adversarial. You know? Right. I actually um, I addressed a column that touched on this a little. It had to do with um, what the best way would be to deal with guests at one's own home who are being racist at the dinner table. Oh, I missed that one. I should have read um, that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it was, it was one of the earlier ones, and I thought it was a really hard issue. Um, it's easy to sit behind your desk and say, oh, you should call them out, and you should lecture them, and you shouldn't tolerate it, and you should kick them out. Right. But like you said, in reality, I don't think that would actually help change their views or create like what they call a teachable moment. Right. I ended up advising the person to sort of let it ride during the meal and to not humiliate the offender and not lecture the offender, but take them aside or send them an email later and sort of appeal to their humanity um, and say, this really bothered me. It made me sad, made me angry. And here's why, you know, what you said about, um, about Latino people hurt me because I, I know Latino people and they're not like that. I know that would be painful to them. Um, so I thought doing it in sort of doing it in a respectful way that hopefully would allow them to have their defenses down might actually be more productive than making a massive scene. Yeah, yeah. Uh, one thing that, you know, occurs to me and I said, you know, be, remaining silent is deeply uncomfortable because mm -hmm. you don't want to implicitly have them feel as though oh, everybody agrees with me, you know, mm -hmm. and, and and not realize that, in fact, a lot of us seriously disagree. Right. You know? Well, one of my favorite things when people make um, a racist joke is just to say, wait a minute, I don't get it. Could you explain that? Ooh. <laughs> and then it just completely puts the onus back on them to, like, explain whatever racist understanding the joke was based upon. Mm. Mm. Hey, let's talk about, uh, we sa I said we would uh, earlier in the conversation, so let's do it. Talk about Melissa Harris-Perry. Yeah. Because it was, um, not only is it in the news right now, but it was an example of just how treacherous this stuff can be. Mm -hmm. So Melissa Harris-Perry, uh, MSNBC host, a uh, academic, a political commentator, uh, she has her own show on MSNBC. I guess they were having like a year-end show where they were, the idea was that her guests who were comedians and so on mm -hmm. were just creating funny captions for photos that she would flash up. Right. Focused on comedy. Right. And one of the photos was of Mitt Romney with his 20-plus grandchildren, one of whom is black, uh, who is a baby who was on his knee in mm -hmm. the picture. And can you tell us what happened next? Or yes, should I? I, I'm, I'm pulling up. You can go ahead and say it, yeah. Oh, okay. Well, I guess there were some awkward chuckles, and then someone sang a line from a, a Sesame Street uh, tune saying, which one of these things just doesn't belong? Um, and then it moved on. I mean, not a lot was said, but the idea that this was fodder for, for humor, I don't even know what was intended. 
though I think Romney is often viewed as like the whitest guy in America. So people were going to have some <laughs> political fun with the idea that he had a, has a black grandchild. Right. I don't know. But people were offended for reasons. Do I need to explain? Do you want to explain? Yeah, I mean, people <laughs> thought it was um, really inappropriate for her to be talking about a child and, you know, throw a race in the mix and it gets even more inflammatory. Um, and so she did end up giving a very sincere apology about it. Um, I actually used this as an example in a column that hasn't yet been published about what to teach teenagers about joking about race. And what I said in it is that um, basically be really, really careful. Like think before you make any joke related to race about what you really mean, how it might be perceived, how it might be misperceived, how it might be understood out of the context in which you made it, and whether it's worth it. Um, I think those are all things that should sort of run through our heads when it comes to these type of issues. Um, I would actually argue that Melissa Harris-Perry was not mocking the the black grandchild. She was mocking sort of Mitt Romney's relationship with race, um, and, and the joke in, involved the baby. But by the time things get out of control and by the time people have been upset about something, it's too late to sort of go back and explain the nuance of what the joke was on and what was actually funny. So to me, it's just an example of how we have to really, really tread carefully around these types of issues. Because even when, even when what you're really making fun of is racism, or what you're really making fun of is the existence of a stereotype, um, we, we are not trained to really think about these things closely and deeply and to piece them apart. It's like red flags go up, you mentioned race, that equals racism. Everyone's going to go crazy, you might lose your job. Um, so people on both sides of sort of the political spectrum obviously have to use a lot of caution. Um, and we, we should note that Melissa Harris-Perry is biracial. Her mom is white. Mm-hmm. And her mom has a Mormon background and that she has a lot of white Mormon relatives, which made it especially ironic and may, may have added to how choked up she got when she apologized, saying she really did not mean to cast aspersions on you know, multiracial families and mm-hmm. so on and so forth. I'm still scratching my head over why they picked that picture and why they were doing that. But I, I have the feeling it says something about the way race is politicized in this country. Mm-hmm. And tell me what you think. But, you know, the the left has used the racist card on the right a lot. Mm-hmm. Uh, and sometimes they seem to think it's okay to make fun of Things like that when they're they're mocking, say, a conservative, mm-hmm. because conservatives are perceived to be, with some basis sometimes, as being on the wrong side of racial issues. Mm-hmm. And therefore, they become fair game to be made fun of if, you know, let's say they have a black grandchild or they have a, uh, you know, another black... Black spouse or whoever. Or, yeah, yeah, or, mm-hmm. or the case of Strom Thurmond, a black uh, mistress. <laughs> child. <laughs> child, yeah, yeah. But again, there's there's a real human being out there who is the child, you know, mm-hmm. right? Absolutely. I think it's just, it's like I said, I think it's some, one of those questions you have to ask yourself before you make the joke. Like maybe we all need to be retrained um, about just the potential ways a comment like that could be read or misread. And it's not necessarily going to line up with what was meant or what your real feelings were. And, you know, you hear you hear the conservatives who who get caught up in this stuff giving these defenses all the time. It was just a joke. I didn't mean it like that. I actually like black people. I actually have black friends. I'm the most, you know, kind-hearted person you'll ever meet. But those explanations always ring hollow after 
someone has been hurt and after it's been in the national headlines. So I think we have to be a little more proactive about um, editing ourselves on both sides of the political spectrum. Mm, mm. What about comedians? Do you give them a special pass? Because it seems like we as a society, as you say, treat have treated race as almost this risque subject, like you're talking about mental illness or mm-hmm. or sex or some other subject that's not really discussed in polite society. Mm-hmm. And therefore, as Shakespeare did, we let the jesters say all the stuff we're thinking or have wondered about. Right. So I always think when it comes to jokes, it's like there should be this calculation, which is like the joke's offensiveness has to be balanced out by how funny it is. <laughs> but <laughs> oh, unfortunately, <boy. laughs> we're all not going to agree on on either of those measures, right? Not at all. Um, not at so all. I think... Um, a better way to look at it might be sort of to not to sort of say that jokes that hinge on race or racism aren't okay, but to evaluate sort of the common understanding that underlies the joke. Like a joke has to rest on some sort of like common understanding to be funny, right? So if the common understanding is that, oh, my God, there's a lot of racism in the world, and here's an example of it, maybe that's funnier than if if the basis of the joke is stereotypes about black people. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. There, and there's a, lot of, there's a lot of nuance there, and obviously it's, again, one of those things that we're not going to agree on. But I would encourage comedians to kind of take that extra step and, be, and ask themselves, okay, what's really funny here? And is the part that's really funny, like, hateful or derogatory? Or is it just social commentary? I, I can hear some of the comedians I, I know or I've interviewed saying to you, no, that's, you're, you're limiting it too much. There's a lot of dangerous stuff that just needs to be said and let the chips fall where they may. And right, and I would say you absolutely make any joke you want, but don't be upset if it hits people the wrong way mm. and if people don't like you as a result. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, people always are like, oh, but freedom of speech. Yes, you absolutely have freedom of speech, and other people have freedom to judge you based on your speech. Like, you won't get thrown in jail, but you might be mocked, you might be criticized, you might be blacklisted. You ever get any questions from comedians who are consulting no, you? No, I haven't had <laughs> one yet, but if any comedians are listening... Um, free for consulting. You write of yourself uh, in this column, I've been writing about the intersection of race with politics, culture, and identity, and sometimes just stuff black people do for the root for a couple of years. So I split my time pretty evenly between being outraged and laughing hysterically. Yeah, I think it's important to keep that balance. Um, There's a lot of stuff happening that I think is absolutely legitimate basis for outrage, um, for being upset about, you know, with, with no caveats and with no special twists. But there's also a lot of stuff that lends itself to humor, you know, to irony and to sort of like, I don't know, a take, a take that's, that's not as serious or not as expected. Well, I, I've seen the outrage. I've seen the humor in your column. And something else I see is a, a lot of these questions are, you know, if you think about them, really poignant in a way. It's like people struggling, just ordinary people just trying to get through their lives, struggling with this massive legacy of unreconciled and unhealable wounds. And, Mm -hmm. you know, we little mere mortals, we can't handle that all by ourselves. And yet it works its way out in these little interactions. Right. Honestly, I have to tell you, my heart is always warmed by the questions I get. It just makes me feel so good that people even, even care about these questions. 
um, a lot of them seem distressing at the outset, but then I'm like, you know what? I'm really, I'm really thankful we're actually talking about this. It makes me feel good about um, the awareness people have and about the future. So you like your job and you're going to keep it. Absolutely. Well, thanks so much, Janae, for talking to me today. Thanks for having me. Janae Desmond-Harris writes for TheRoot.com, and you can send her your own questions about racial confusions and issues that surface in your life by emailing racemanners at TheRoot.com. This has been the 7th Avenue Project. We are online at 7thAvenueProject.com. I'm Robert Polly, saying so long until next week. Music